0: This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, I told you about Bruce Nickel, a man who mysteriously collapsed and died. Then just a few days later, also in Auburn, Washington, 40-year-old mother and banker Sue Snow also collapsed and died. When her death was ruled a homicide via cyanide poisoning, her husband Paul was looked at as a suspect, and the country was terrified to hear there might be another murderer tampering with medication capsules. With a nationwide recall, those who had bottles of Excedrin at home were checking them so they could call in if they were in possession of one from the same lot as those Sue Snow had ingested. That was when Stella Nickel, Bruce's wife, realized they not only had a bottle from that batch, but Bruce had died right after taking a few pills. So perhaps his death wasn't caused by emphysema after all. In a panic, Stella called 911 at 5.30 p.m. on June 17th. This time, it was to report that her dead husband had been murdered. A plan was made for the police to come by the following day to interview Stella about her concerns. To help her get through the stress of the night, Stella had her friend Sandy come over. They drank the night away, Stella more than Sandy, and tried to relax. Oh, no, I'm
1: really worried. <gasps> Did her friend take some of it? Oh, my God. She didn't put tape on it and go, this killed my husband? I'm so nervous. I can tell. Oh, this is terrible. She had a hangover. Well,
0: I'll get to it if you'll stop panicking. <laughs> Going to bed, Sandy looked under the bathroom cabinet where she found a bottle of Excedrin. Weirded out, she picked it up, then panicked. Had she touched something poisonous? Had she touched evidence? The following morning, an officer came back to Stella's house and confiscated the bottles she provided, including the one found under the sink. She begged them to test and see if they too had been tainted. The officer validated Stella's concerns at the time, but when he got back to the station, he simply put the pills in his locker and went on his way. Why? Eventually, he did file them, and they were tested. Okay, good. After weeks of vocalizing her disagreement with the autopsy results, Stella would get her wish granted. The coroner reopened Bruce's case and was able to test his blood. This was due to the fact that Bruce had donated his eyes. While still at the eye bank, his blood was tested, and it came back positive for cyanide poisoning. Wait, so he shouldn't have been
1: able to donate eyes, right? That's not good. That's what I thought, and I didn't even know get into his eyes. It well, it was in the blood, which was in his eyes. Oh my god, that'd be a interesting plot to a book.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure if any blood eye doctor experts or donation people, because I wasn't even sure how to Google I mean, that. I'm
1: pretty sure. Any kind of like poisoning or something makes you
0: ineligible to donate. But if they wouldn't have known. But they didn't catch the poisoning. And if they weren't testing for that. Hopefully they test everything before they even do the operation, I would think. But I don't know. I don't know either. That's scary. I would love to hear from someone if they if they know that process. Now there were officially two victims of product tampering, and the investigators were desperate to stop there from being any additional lives lost. They had never solved the Chicago tamperings, and the last thing they wanted was another nationwide failure. Supporting the degree of concern, the mayor issued a state of emergency. Bristol Myers, the makers of Excedrin, issued a nationwide recall. The CMERS, or Seattle Murders Team, went into overdrive to put the recall into place the following morning. As it had been in Chicago, the case had the same manager and some of the same agents. The FBI set up a headquarters for CMERS in Seattle and hoped it would have a better outcome than the Tylenol murders or any of the other lesser-known unsolved tampering cases. The next morning, officers were sent out to stores picking up all of the bottles of Excedrin. That process went as planned, and nothing was really out of the ordinary, until they got to the pay-and-save located next to the Albertson store believed to have been the location of Sue Snow's purchase. The purchase made within two weeks of Stella's own buying of Excedrin. When investigators arrived at the store, they would work with the staff to double-check inventory and shelves, making sure they had all available extra-strength Excedrin capsules in hopes of avoiding another tragedy. At the pay and save, the team was informed by staff that earlier in the day, there had been a bottle of anison, which, like Excedrin, is an aspirin with caffeine, which had been located not just on the wrong shelf, but in the wrong aisle. Something so innocuous that we've seen and maybe even done ourselves, where someone has grabbed an item, changed their mind, and don't have it in them to return it to the rightful place. But this wasn't just a soup can in the bread aisle. This was a pain pill, extra strength, in a store next to where known tampering had occurred. Even more upsetting, it was noticed there were layers of sales tags, none of which were used by Pay and Save.
1: Listeners, if you're the type of person that doesn't go put the item back where you picked it up, <laughs> and yeah, hang up now. I'm just
0: <laughs> I, if but you I don't never... put your cart back. Oh, well, you know cart how corral. I feel about
1: the cart corral. But also, it is not that much effort to go take the peanut it's butter not. back to the peanut
0: butter aisle. It drives me at bonkers. the very least. Just take it to the front counter. Yeah. You know what I hate? What makes me actually sick? The things from frozen being left out? Not only frozen, but like from the deli. Yeah. And it's it's like, hi. Um, do you know what my brain does when I see that? I think about the fact that that, that poor little piggy got killed for literally no Nothing. reason so that you could just sit your ham on that aisle because you changed your mind about it. Yep. And now they don't know how long it's been there and it's going in the trash.
1: Yeah, they can't Disgusting. put it back.
0: They can't. They're not able to. Frozen and fresh things. Mm-hmm. Well, not all fresh things, but mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Yeah.
1: Refrigerated. Yeah. It's just rude. It's rude. And put your cart back. That's yeah. really rude. It's super rude. <laughs> but I love you guys.
0: <laughs> but you do have to
1: abide by our morals. Thank you. <laughs> I have questionable morals, except for putting my cart back and my food back at the grocery store. (laughs)
0: Exactly. There I draw the line. With 15,000 bottles now in their possession, the labs had their work set out for them. To check every pill in every bottle, hoping it would help lead them towards the perpetrator. Luckily, they didn't have to physically test each individual pill. Cyanide is actually denser than the medication, so toxicologists were able to x-ray the bottles. When they did so, two more tainted bottles were caught. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, isn't that neat? It like shows up different. So they don't, they wouldn't
1: even have to throw away product. Exactly. That's well, awesome. Yeah. I'm I mean, not sure.
0: I, they probably did. They I probably guess, did the
1: recall, but but still, like yeah. that's pretty cool. Or they repackaged it. I don't know.
0: I don't know what kind of morals we're working with there. <laughs> <laughs> they just wouldn't put it back on the shelf. Better be the right shelf. Out of all the bottles, only six were found to contain poison. On average, the pills that contained cyanide had 700 milligrams of it. For a 150-pound person, it would take about 225 milligrams to be fatal, to give you an idea of how lethal that dose was. Testing also discovered the tamperer used gloves. There were no fingerprints on the bottles, pills, or boxes. And all tampered bottles in Sue and Stella's possession were purchased within the last two weeks at different stores throughout Auburn. Of the six contaminated bottles, here's what was found. Bottle number one, Sue Snows. She was known for having little to no tolerance for the safety packaging of pills, so when she got a new bottle and it wasn't being kept in her purse, she would remove the lid and wrapping, leaving it open, which was the condition of this bottle. No cap remained on the 60-count bottle, but 56 pills were inside, nine of which were laced. Right away, as the cyanide was examined, something odd caught the toxicologist's eye. The cyanide contained microscopic green specks of an unknown origin. Documentation regarding the specks would become detrimental to the case. Bottle two, recovered from Johnny's, a store in Kent, Washington. The 60 count bottle was still in the box, but the safety seal had been cut. There were only 56 pills left. Four were poisoned, all had specks. Bottle three, that was the one Stella turned in. It was a 40 count, and she too didn't care for the childproof lid, so she would bend it to allow for easier opening. The couple had consumed 33 of the pills, leaving only 7, two of which had been poisoned. Well, that depended on how many Bruce had taken that night when he died. There had been four or maybe five deadly capsules originally. One of the two remaining had green specks. Amazingly, Stella claimed that, just like with the Chicago case, she had been so distraught after Bruce's funeral, she came home and took a couple of Excedrin. (gasps) By some miracle, she didn't ingest a tainted capsule. That is lucky. Of the two additional bottles from the Nickel home, bottle four was newer. There was no seal, but of the 40 count, only five had been taken. Four of the remaining were laced, all of which contained the mysterious green substance. The last bottle from their home was the one Sandy had found under the sink the night she came over to console Stella. Due to the type, this actually wasn't considered evidence. As for the wrong shelf Anison, the box had been re-glued and it had originally come from a different store. Of the 50 count listed on the box, there were only 45, of which 4 had specks and cyanide. This led to several theories and provided some answers. As for who was doing this, it was figured that poison was found in multiple brands, so it probably wasn't occurring during production. Paul was the top suspect based on his behavior and the possible strain in he and Sue's relationship, but that wouldn't explain endangering and even killing strangers. Yeah, why? like what motive does he have to do that? Exactly. So was this the same killer from Chicago or just another madman wreaking havoc? Investigators were so desperate for a lead that they even toyed with the idea that this could be the new M.O. of the then-unknown Green River Killer. Uh, no. I mean, easy to say Pretty outrageous. <laughs> pretty outrageous to even consider then, I think. But when you have what appears to be multiple serial killers. Yeah,
1: you're just, you're grasping at straws. Yeah, so... Did you say what those specs were? Do
0: we know yet? They don't know yet. Okay. They're just con- they're confused as to what it could be because it's mixed in with the cyanide. But they're,
1: all, they're all consistent with each other. Those yes. specs are the same. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: interesting. With the cyanide from all of the bottles matching, it was decided that this hadn't been a one off and then a copycat. These were all the same case, per se. With the investigators' sights still fixed on Paul and closing this case being a priority to be able to give the community peace of mind, investigators wanted to interview the family, but Paul forbade it. That didn't stop the adults in the family from speaking out, though. When it came to Paul, it was clear that everyone knew he was prone to being temperamental, something the detectives didn't need to conduct interviews to find out. Paul had expressed his frustration with them and the investigation on plenty of highly emotional occasions. One example was when investigators asked Paul to take a polygraph test. To that request, he essentially, quote, blew up. In additional conversations with Paul, he claimed he had come home from a drive the night before Sue passed. In the morning, just like every other day, both he and Sue took two pills for the benefit of caffeine. It was noted that on other occasions, he never said anything about the caffeine, instead saying Sue took them for headaches, which was also what her twin Sarah had stated. It was odd to detectives that one, Paul was lucky enough to not get another tainted capsule out of the same bottle, and two, if he left before she was up for the day, how did he know that she took the two pills? Was this an assumption? Or something he had made sure of. Two things. One, he is
1: not doing himself any favors. No. Two, I didn't realize anyone would take pills for caffeine, etc. I know it has caffeine in it. I, but people actually take it for that
0: benefit? I don't know if they take it strictly for it. I mean, I'm sure there are people in the world that do. I know I seek it out when I have an an exceptionally bad headache especially a sinus headache because caffeine does help relieve that for me so I will seek it out for the caffeine because of the type of headache I unfortunately had to discontinue using it
1: because it has the, the liquid caffeine. in my inner ear well there but you caffeine, go yeah
0: Putting together the timeline of the evening before Sue died, her daughter, Exa, had stopped by to grab some things as she was staying with a fella friend. She reported the family was barbecuing and had ended the evening with some hot tub time. No one was drinking. It was just a casual night at home. She also confirmed her mother only used tablets. She knew this because her mother had vocalized concerns regarding what had happened in Chicago. The more that was learned about Paul, the more it was looking like he was responsible for killing Sue. Sarah shared that Paul wasn't violent, he would just yell a lot. He and Sue would fight, but it was usually about his long drives that kept him away from home and the affair he had supposedly ended. Paul was also known to take issue with Sue's career, only because she made more money than he did, and he had a tendency to focus on finances. Do you know,
1: was it talked about, if Sue was so against these capsules, capsules, I can never say it, what is the argument that she actually took it? Was she being forced to take it? Was it like, oh, I accidentally bought the wrong ones and you, you can just take the, it?
0: Yeah, the only argument that I saw was that they had accidentally been purchased and they just settled.
1: And she didn't like the ones that her sister found in her purse were tablets. That's what I'm saying. Why wouldn't she go take those? Right. If somebody bought the ones she doesn't normally buy, I just think that's odd. I agree.
0: Other aspects of the case that had eyes on Paul, Sue's $20,000 life insurance policy had a double indemnity clause, meaning the tampering was considered an accident, so Paul would actually receive $40,000. Paul was a truck driver, which provided an alibi that could be confirmed but wasn't airtight. His travels also gave him the ability to get the bottle of Anison from what ended up being marked by and located in other stores throughout the area. It was also seen as a bit too much of a coincidence that Sue's death occurred on garbage day, allowing for all packaging and any other evidence to be long gone before it was realized the home was a crime scene. In his favor, an ex of Paul's said, Paul wouldn't kill his wife, he just divorces them.
1: (laughs) That's true. It's a valid point. That
0: is a very valid point. About the capsules that everyone else in Sue's life stood firm in knowing she wouldn't have taken. Paul assured everyone they had just been purchased accidentally. Instead of returning them, they just decided to take them. Paul even claimed that Sue continued to use them because she found them easier to take than tablets.
1: I guess that makes sense. Like, I have bought the wrong thing and just kept it around just in case. It's not
0: worth the hassle of and then, taking it back. And
1: then when I need it, I try it and I'm like, oh, that's not that bad. Yeah. And I continue. So I, that sounds like a valid argument to me.
0: But it was a topic that Sarah would argue, especially when she recalled that when she had last visited just a month prior, Sue was using tablets. Asking those that worked with Sue, they corroborated Sarah's point. Everyone at the bank knew Sue only took tablets. It was also their understanding that she took them for pain, cramps, and headaches, never as a source for caffeine, as Paul had claimed. They also confirmed how successful she was, especially of late. In fact, she had just closed a huge $5 million deal. But the way she did business could have been the source of a motive as well. Perhaps her co-worker and former lover's wife got wind of their affair and took revenge. Same for any of the partners of the men she took out on lunch dates. In fact, she had received a nasty letter from an unknown adversary just a few years before her death. It was believed to have been harmless, but possibly pertaining to the co-worker. Maybe someone at work just didn't like their boss. All of these options were quickly ruled out, but a report of Sue turning in a bank client for embezzlement only six months prior to her death did seem promising, yet nothing came of it. Looking more into Sue's life, she, like her husband, had a bit of a temper, but more importantly, she prioritized being a good friend. Her relationship with Exo was going okay, but due to their close age, they always had more of a friendship-type relationship than that of a parent and child. Their bond wasn't helped by EXA going to school to get a tax degree in New Mexico. Back in the lab, forensic scientists were using a mass spectrometer to process the mysterious green specks that had been found in the capsules. Liquefying the crystals until they were broken into molecules, they were able to create a substance fingerprint. Dear listeners that are DNA scientists, and I know there are some of you listening, please don't send hate mail if I mispronounced or misspoke regarding the process. It sounded good to me. I, I just don't have that schooling. Please forgive me. <laughs> anyway, that chemical fingerprint told them that the specs were made of azotrine, dichlone, muron, and sinazine, which equaled chemicals used to clean aquariums. So Roger Martz, an FBI chemist, went to an aquarium store and purchased multiple algicides. Only one had the same makeup as what had been found, a product called Algae Destroyer. Hmm. It was great that they had a name to put to the discovery, but what was the connection? It wasn't like Algae Destroyer was used as the poison or that it contained cyanide. It left investigators stumped. That was until the officer that had spoken with Stella, you know, the one who put the evidence in his locker, got word of the chemical discovery. Thinking back to her house, he recalled her reaching into an aquarium cabinet to retrieve insurance papers.
1: I was right about Stella.
0: (laughs) I was right. (laughs) Well, well, well. So do you feel so bad now? I certainly do not always trust your (laughs) gut feeling. So, printing out a photo of Stella, detectives went to all 57 local pet stores. Getting to one retailer, Tom, the cashier, recognized the hard-to-forget Stella. She was memorable, not just because of her loud, usually animal print and low-cut clothing, but because she frequently came in specifically for Algae Destroyer. When she made a purchase, they spoke even longer than one would expect because those pills specifically had a habit of getting hardened in the packaging. So, as he told every customer who bought Algae Destroyer, it was best to crush them up first so that they could dissolve quicker once in the aquarium. This was another connection, but an unexplainable one that was at best circumstantial. But it was still more promising than any of the nonsense the Seamers team had received via their tip line. Continuing the investigation, officers went to local businesses that supplied cyanide, which I was surprised to know just how many things it's used for, but there were no hits for Stella or any odd purchases in general. The focus was now shifting from Paul to Stella, but as the weeks and months went on, it was found that the CD Paul had promised to open with the life insurance money for Sue's daughter was never created. Officers also claimed that at the start of the case, Paul was the first to mention Sue was probably poisoned. It also didn't help that within a few months, he was dating someone new. He did finally agree to the polygraph test, which he passed. To celebrate doing so, he ominously told the officers that they were never going to solve Sue's case. What the shit is he thinking? Right? You're passing the test. You're, you're practically getting cleared as a suspect. Oh and my goodness. I think it was more of a frustration, like, you you know, you're wasting this time with me. Oh, yeah. You're never going to solve this. Okay, that makes more sense. But also, like, when you pass your polygraph, maybe don't end it with, like, you're never going to solve this case because it can be interpreted many ways. Yeah. Jeez. These suspicious choices were just what officers were seeing. What they didn't know was that all of the pressure had Paul certain that he was a suspect all along, something that scared him so badly, he actually warned his stepdaughter Haley that they were both going to be looked at as suspects and that she needed to be leery. By the fall of that year, within six months of Sue's passing, Paul was remarried. Things in the house weren't getting better and tensions were so bad, there was even an instance in which Paul slapped Haley. And as for their never-created CDs... The money was spent and the family was broke. The girls would never get any money from their mother's death. With nothing but a bad vibe and circumstantial evidence, the investigation stalled and Paul Webb King was eventually cleared as a suspect. Focusing their energy on Stella and her aquariums, investigators wanted to see if there was anything in Stella's life that would make for a good motive. For some on the team, even thinking Stella was the killer was preposterous, Bruce was dead and buried. Stella had a death certificate. If she had killed him, why on earth would she draw attention to it? That was the question the Seymours investigators knew that if they could answer, it could very well solve the case. Stella Stevenson was born in Colton, Oregon in 1943. To say her family's means were meager would be an understatement. To drink or bathe, she and her siblings had to fetch their water from oak barrels. The family of eight was living in a two-bedroom home near an animal rendering plant. There had been claims the home was full of sexual and physical abuse and neglect. A sister of Stella's accused her father of sexually abusing her. The children witnessed their father shooting at their mother with a shotgun. Perhaps due to the abuse, Stella developed early, becoming sexually active in elementary school. Before Stella was even born, the family had experienced major trauma, her baby brother Frankie Jean dying from a head injury shortly before she was born. The family would be hit with more devastation when, at five years old, Stella had an accident at the stove and badly burned her brother, Little Joe. He recovered, but it had been a serious injury. Then, five years later, a house fire would kill Little Joe. Stella and her siblings would make it out unharmed. Stella noted she never saw her mother cry about the loss of yet another child. Besides all of that trauma, the family relocated frequently, leaving Oregon for Colorado, then going back to Oregon, then Puget Sound in Washington. Stella then lived with her grandmother in California before settling back in Washington as a 30-year-old in 1973. Not that this is pertinent to the case, but I feel this story illustrates the kind of chaos Stella was living in. Her mother, Alva Georgina, who went by Joe, found her birth certificate much later in life. Instead of reading it and being like, oh, okay, good to know. She discovered that her name had been Cora Lee at birth, and from then on, she insisted everyone refer to her as that. When Stella was just 15 years old, she ended up pregnant. When asked about the father, she claimed the baby was a product of a gang rape, saying a friend had tied her up and allowed for the rapes to happen. As horrific as that is, there were questions about the legitimacy of her claim, not because she was a woman, but because she was Stella, and honesty hadn't always been her best quality. To cover up the shame of what was then a bastard child, Stella became involved with a boy named Lester. On August 23, 1959, Stella gave birth to her daughter, Cynthia Lee Slauson. The relationship with Lester didn't last, so Cora Lee offered to care for or even adopt her granddaughter. Stella had no problem taking advantage of the free childcare her mother provided, and it wasn't long before she was back on the dating scene and once again finding herself pregnant. Her older boyfriend had given her a ring, but when she discovered him cheating, she called the relationship off. With her mother unable and unwilling to support another child, Stella was forced to place her son up for adoption, sight unseen, in 1963. To cover her deeds, she told her family, or at least those who had known she was pregnant, that the baby had been stillborn. By 1966, Stella was in California, married to a man named Bob, and pregnant again. After second daughter Lee was born, it was less than a year before Stella was pregnant again. With two young children and money being tight, Stella couldn't imagine managing another baby, so she had an abortion. Bob didn't mind. He didn't think the baby was his anyway. Through all of that, marriage and children hadn't slowed Stella down. She still loved the bars and the attention she got from men. Unlike most parents, having children didn't cause Stella to reprioritize her lifestyle or budget. It was noted that Stella would take care of herself in whatever capacity that meant for her before worrying about Cindy. There would even be times Cindy would go without food before Stella would stop shopping for things that she wanted. In 1969, Stella did what many mothers did back then. She spanked her daughter for not leaving her clothes and makeup alone. According to Stella, it wasn't anything more than a typical spanking. But when bruises were noticed by staff at Cindy's school, they questioned her. She shared that her mother, in a rage, grabbed a wooden pole used by Robert in a doorframe to hold his feet while he did sit-ups, and she beat her with it. Child services stepped in, and Stella went to jail. Bob had been shocked when he saw Cindy's condition. Stella was unfazed by the accusations. Cindy was not only fond of any kind of attention, but she also bruised as easy as a banana. As if this wasn't all traumatizing enough, it was while completing paperwork with CPS that Cindy learned Robert had not been her biological father, a simple lie via omission on her mother's behalf.
1: so not only is your mom abusing you, yeah. your dad isn't your dad,
0: That's yeah, because really she was rough. so young. she was so young when Stella and Bob got together that she was just raised with that being her father. There was, like, never a conversation either way. After the arrest, Stella was ordered to go to therapy, and Cindy was put in Bob's care. In May of 1970, a little over a year after the child abuse accusations, Stella faced new legal troubles. Offering to house her impoverished cousin and her family, there were plans to help get them to Stella and Robert's place. After the family had a car accident and other changes of plans, they ended up back in the same part of California they had started from, never living at Stella's. Before her cousin had arrived, paperwork had been filled out to have their welfare checks go to Stella's home. When they got back to their home, they reapplied and started receiving their regular welfare checks. Going to Stella's to get some of their items that had ended up there, the cousin mentioned they had survived thanks to their welfare benefits. It was surprising to Stella that her cousin was still getting the checks, so she questioned her. It turned out that when the cousin knew that they would be staying in state, she went to the office to stop the original transfer to Stella's. In a perfect example of government paperwork, the address change had already taken place, and for five months, Stella had been receiving, signing for, and using the checks and food stamps meant for her cousin and children. Family or not, her cousin was not interested in being part of committing a felony or risking losing her own services, so she reported Stella's thievery to the welfare department, initiating an investigation. It didn't take long for a warrant to be issued and for Stella to be arrested. Taking a deal, she pled guilty to one count of forgery and was to spend six months in jail in Orange County. With Stella in jail, her mother, Cora Lee, moved into the house with Robert to care for Cindy and Lee. With his, shall we say, difficult wife out of the house, Bob became friendly with a neighbor lady and quickly fell in love. Robert visited Stella every day, taking the girls each Saturday, but the legal and emotional toll Stella had taken on him had come to a head, so he filed for divorce. Stella was released in October for good behavior and had the awkward honor of moving into a spare room in her estranged husband's new girlfriend's house. Oh, that's odd. Luckily, it was only for a few days. Even though during the investigations Stella had promised Robert had not been involved, as soon as she was released and had been dumped, something unheard of for her, her story changed. She claimed Robert was actually the mastermind behind the check scheme and that he had been sexually abusive towards her daughters, none of which had or could be proven. Like Connie and Sue, it took over seven years for their divorce to be finalized. Leah went with her dad and there wasn't much of a relationship between her and her mother. Unwilling to slow down, Stella's group of friends at the bar ended up being a biker gang. She even started dating again, first with a guy from the gang, Eddie. Within that group, she started asking around, seeking the assistance of someone that would kill Bob and his new wife. The stress of Stella's behavior was too much for the gang and Eddie, both of which dumped her. Police did get word of the hitman request and told the informant they would keep an eye on the situation, but no charges were ever filed. After living with her ex and then staying at a friend's, Stella ended up living in a hotel where her children would stay with her when in her custody. It was notable to those who supported her through that time that she was often gone until the wee hours and would return home with either a new outfit or shopping bags. This led to questions about how she was getting her money, most coming to the conclusion that she either had a sugar daddy or was doing sex work. Speaking of sex work, the fact that Stella would bring her 13-year-old daughter Cindy to bars alluded to her actually trafficking her own child, something that Cindy did confirm later. That's terrible. Abusers, carnival workers, and a man named Bull were in and out of Stella's life until November of 73 when she and her children moved up to Washington, which ripped Leah away from her father. He and Leah's stepmother eventually tracked them down and took custody. It would be the next year Stella and Bruce would meet and he would love her for all of her flaws, flirtations, and felonies. Since her lifestyle never wavered, he too thought she might have been getting money from other men in exchange for sex or her company. It wasn't the worst thing. She never needed money and they lived comfortably. Even if more of the Seamers team was looking at Stella as a viable suspect, some still had reservations about Paul. With a warrant to check his truck, police searched it, finding nothing out of the ordinary, just some vitamins and bennies used as stimulants to stay awake on long trips. It was reported later that after the search, Paul went looking on his own and found a bottle of Excedrin capsules in the seat pocket in the truck. Fearful it would make him look bad, he claimed to have thrown them into the Green River which also made him look bad.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that made it any better. (laughs) Nice
0: try, though. Sarah, Sue's twin, was also one of the people still on team Paul is Guilty. Having been around her sister and family, it was clear they were spenders, but she knew between them they didn't have enough to live the way they had been. The insurance had been motive enough for her. Even though she didn't trust him, he was still family, and it was hard to believe that he would really kill Sue. So one night, when she had been there after the funeral, Paul offered Sarah a tranquilizer. Desperate for relief, she took it. It helped, but looking at the instructions later, the dose he provided was about double the amount she should have taken. Not that that was concrete evidence, but it only served to further prove her doubts. Searches also took place at Stella's house. If she was to blame or not, her husband had been a victim. Searching the home and Bruce's shed, they thought they may have come across the cyanide when a mysterious powder was discovered in some Rainier beer bottles. Inquiring as to what it was, it was the totally acceptable and very longtime Northwesterner answer. It was dust they had collected from the eruption of Mount St. Helens.
1: <laughs> Tell me that was proved.
0: Yeah, it was. Oh it my was, God. It was, it was just ash. <laughs> that who, is hilarious. Who, who doesn't have Mount St. Helens ash in cannot get more Pacific Northwest than that. <laughs> Especially in a Rainier bottle. It's not even, like, nicely displayed. It's just like, <laughs> I've got some ash over there. Vitamin R. <laughs> on June 19th, Stella had a visit from and formal interview with the FBI and FDA. Speaking about life insurance, there was a policy with a state worth 5000 for life, 5000 if accidental, and a possible 25000 additional. She had additional policies, which Bruce missed out on because of a paperwork error. They went over the receipts for her multiple Excedrin purchases from multiple locations. The receipts didn't match up to all of them, but that wasn't that big of a deal. Other aspects were unsettling, though. If it had been so well known Bruce was struggling with headaches and he had been taking medication daily, why would she buy the smaller bottles? Why was she buying bottles across town? Most concerning, what were the odds of one person being in possession of two tainted bottles out of 15,000? especially when they were purchased on separate occasions. When Cindy arrived, she too was questioned. She was aware of Bruce's headaches and that he would only take Excedrin. She believed the headaches started earlier in the year, brought on by the stressors of getting laid off. As far as she knew, there were no money issues or arguments between the couple. Through subsequent interviews, it was learned it was Cindy who had first been intrigued by aquarium life, Her mother quickly copied, not getting one aquarium, but three, and adding fish photography to her list of hobbies. As the tips and clues dried up, investigators were desperate to get Stella on a polygraph. Maybe it would clear her. Maybe it would damn her. But every time she was asked, she expressed her desire to do so to help close the case, but she wouldn't be able to. Her doctors had put her on a medication to manage the trauma of losing Bruce, and they were certain that they would interfere with the results. It wouldn't be until December of 1986 when she would finally take the polygraph. She failed.
1: Not surprised.
0: (laughs) Processing the paperwork Stella had provided and cross-checking other information, it was realized Stella had either been in the dark or bluffing when it came to the life insurance payout. Bruce actually had two policies. On one, the payout was $100,000 higher if the death was accidental, which tampering consisted. In all, she would be receiving about $175,000, a red flag the size of the American ones at Camping World was raised. That's big. That's a big red flag. Looking into the couple's finances, it was clear pretty quickly that whatever Stella was doing to bring home clothes and jewelry was not paying the bills. Stella wasn't working, she was attending school, and the couple was broke. In 1982, she filed for bankruptcy, and in 86, she had about $20,000 in debt. She was getting letters of delinquency from collectors regularly. A final notice for their mortgage had just come through on May 27th. Desperate to stave off foreclosure or other financial nightmares, Stella sent letters to the lenders. Led to Stella's communications of late, investigators found even more unsettling information. After Bruce's death, Stella was a squeaky wheel, calling the coroner and then the insurance agents frequently. For the former, it was to get the death certificate and cause of death. Once she had that, she was calling the insurance company for a payout. This sounds familiar. Hmm. But after Bruce's death was ruled a homicide, it halted all progress, and she wouldn't be getting paid until the case was closed. Tracking down the letters she had sent to the lenders, they were all similar, asking for time, explaining that the money would be coming through. But those that mentioned a windfall and the ability to pay soon were eyebrow raising. Not as much as the one that mentioned before Bruce's death that her husband would, quote, no longer be involved with the matter and the bill would soon be paid in full.
1: Ma'am, that was not a smart idea. No.
0: (laughs) What a ding dong. This could have been in regards to a divorce, not necessarily murder. According to Stella's niece, Wilma, she knew things were not going well for the Nichols. Her aunt Stella, who was more like a mother to her, would call and complain about Bruce, especially after he got sober and, according to Stella, boring. Wilma offered her home in Texas as a place for Stella to go, and she seemed to be seriously considering the option. Around the time of Bruce's death, Stella and Wilma had made a plan. Wilma was leaving the country for two weeks for vacation. When she returned, she half expected to find Stella living at her home. When she returned and Stella wasn't there, she assumed it was because she had changed her mind about leaving Bruce. Wilma later learned Stella hadn't driven to Texas to be with her because of Bruce's death. Before Stella took the polygraph, she too was in another relationship. She was sort of engaged to-slash-dating 60-year-old Harry Swanson, That didn't last long, and soon she was on to Fred. She had also procured herself a job. She was now a passenger screener at the SeaTac airport. Continuing their investigation of Stella, a handwriting expert confirmed the signatures on the life insurance documents had been forged, not signed by Bruce Nickel. Girl, you're in trouble. Mm Mm-hmm. Interviewing Cindy again, she passed a polygraph, and the FBI learned a lot more about her and Stella's relationship. It had always been difficult, especially with Stella's abuse, which had led to an eight-year estrangement after Cindy had her baby at 19 years old. They had only reconciled not too long before Bruce died. When he did, Cindy had assumed it was maybe due to overdosing on cocaine, like he had fallen off the wagon and partied too hard. Around that time, the women had been trying to create a closer relationship, even working together at the airport. Their lack of boundaries led to occasions when Stella would sleep with a man Cindy had been seeing just because she could. And Cindy was known to do the same. Sounds like a healthy relationship. Yeah. That was all good-to-know information, but it didn't really help the case. That was until Cindy dropped a bombshell. She and her mother had discussed Bruce's death while at work, and she could lead officers to some of the most damning evidence proving what she had believed all along that her mother killed Bruce. Cindy shared that Stella had been talking to her about getting Bruce out of her life. Not only had he become a tiresome teetotaler, but with the insurance money, the mother and daughter could make their dreams come true and open a fish shop of their own. Cindy had felt those conversations were just her mother's charming way of venting her frustrations. But soon, Stella started to get specific. Perhaps she could get a hitman and just get it done. Maybe someone could cut his brakes or... car. Maybe someone could cut his brakes or cause a car wreck. She even mentioned being inspired by the Tylenol deaths and how that person still hadn't been caught. Cindy claimed that Stella landed on the poisoning route, but it took a few tries to get it right. She had originally put seeds, possibly from foxglove or the hemlock plant, into capsules, which Bruce did consume. They gave him a tummy ache, but he recovered within a day or two. There had even been an occasion in which Cindy discovered capsule shells and an unknown powder in her work locker, left behind by Stella. In order to educate herself on how to properly poison Bruce, Cindy claimed her mother had read books at the library. She then provided the library location and book titles. They were Deadly Harvest and Human Poisoning from Native and Cultivated Plants. When you're going to kill someone, it's best to not tell
1: someone all these details. You're going to act out.
0: Especially when you have a strained relationship. Yeah.
1: Like, she's not suddenly going to keep you safe yeah. after what you did to her.
0: Investigators went straight to the library and took those books, which Stella had borrowed. On the pages with information about cyanide, specifically, there were fingerprints everywhere. <laughs> and they were Stella's.
1: It just gets better and better. I'm sorry, Stella.
0: You're not, you're not doing, you're, you're not, not great at this, stuff. You're Stella. not very smart, honey. <laughs> now the heat was really on Stella, but it wasn't lost on the investigation team or even those in town that it wasn't long before Cindy rolled on her mother that Bristol Myers, Excedrin's parent company, had announced a $300,000 reward for information that led to the tamperer's arrest. Oh. <laughs> Money talks, baby. Mm-hmm. Other rumors about Cindy were that she had been in love with, if not carrying on, a love affair with Bruce, which, later on, even Stella would say there seemed to be something between the two of them. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense to be motive for, well, basically anything. Why kill a man when the end goal is to be together? Given Cindy and Stella's history, there was a grain of salt taken with her claims. This was a woman who had been harmed and wronged by her mother— Killing her husband and then pinning her for it would make one hell of a revenge plot. It seems like a lot of effort, plus they have the
1: fingerprints, right? Mm. Maybe they were in on it together and mm. she turned on her. Tell when- me more.
0: <laughs> Whenever pushed about that possibility, Cindy fought back. She had wanted nothing more in life than to be close to her impossibly distant mother. Here they were finally becoming a family again. She knew saying anything to the investigators would cost her that relationship, which was one of the reasons she hadn't reached out sooner. She hadn't called when the talk of killing Bruce first came up because she thought it was just talk, and she couldn't risk losing her mother again. With Stella the prime suspect, thanks to Cindy's confession, the team was narrowing in, and Cindy was gone, skipping town to avoid the wrath of her mother. Questioning neighbors of the Nichols, one that shared the property, claimed to have found a pile of capsule shells on the property but hadn't thought much of it. When detectives asked Stella why she was reading books about poison, she claimed it was because the new property had a lot of plants that she wasn't familiar with and she wanted to protect her grandchildren. By now, even Stella's friend Sandy, who had found the bottle under the sink, was working with the FBI. And new boyfriend Fred shared that Stella... Who had become an even heavier drinker with the loss of Bruce and preceding scrutiny, confessed to him in a private, intoxicated moment on their couch that she had done it. Back at Stella's house, they never found algae destroyer, but they did find a liquid form of algae management. They hadn't found a mortar and pestle or any other tools for grinding. But the Seamers team felt they had finally caught the responsible party, and for the first time, they would be able to charge someone under the newly enacted federal anti-tampering law. Stella Nichol was arrested on December 9, 1987. There was no option for bail. She pled not guilty at her arraignment. Presenting the evidence of the witness who sold for the algae destroyer, Stella owning an aquarium, the conversations that were had with Cindy, and the, my husband is out of the picture letters, their financial issues, huge insurance payout, and possession of multiple tainted bottles, a grand jury indicted her in spring of 88. On February 16th, Stella's trial began. Some of the more burning questions the prosecution had to answer was why Sue Snow was dead and why would Stella, who had already gotten away with murder, call, and in essence, turn herself in. Those were easy and connected answers. When Stella poisoned Bruce, she anticipated the poisoning being discovered via the smell or at least in the autopsy when no other conditions would be found, which she knew would be the case thanks to the recent physical but with less than half of people being able to smell cyanide, Bruce's death was given a shrug and slapped with emphysema. For Stella, being rid of Bruce was just a bonus of her plan. Once his death was decided as accidental, she would get a huge insurance payout, which was why she took such issue with the coroner's original decision. It wasn't that she didn't think he had had it. It was because she wouldn't get all the money she felt she deserved. Getting the death certificate, she had to enact Plan B, plant other bottles. Let innocent, unrelated people die a horrific death, shattering families, traumatizing children, so she could make her dramatic follow-up 911 call, reopening Bruce's case, changing his cause of death, allowing her to get the money. That is ridiculous.
1: She could have got away with it if she didn't do
0: that. (laughs) Greed, you know? The defense went another route. Let's look at the person who had more to gain, which was Cindy. If she alone or with her mother hatched this plan, she only needed to share enough with the police to get her arrested, earning herself the $300,000 reward. Giving more reasoning for such behavior, Stella shared that she and Bruce had loaned Cindy money. This was simply her way of getting out of paying it back. If that didn't work, they hoped to at least create reasonable doubt by painting Cindy as a vindictive daughter who saw this as revenge for how her mother had treated her. A moment that came up multiple times in trial was when Stella informed Cindy of Bruce's death with that ominous, I know what you're thinking, and no. This was proof that Cindy had been privy to Stella's deadly plan, and from the moment Bruce died, she didn't want what Cindy knew to raise suspicions. On May 8th, after five days of contentious deliberation, the jury, comprised of five men and seven women, found Stella Nickel guilty on two counts of murder and five counts of product tampering. They had agreed with the state. They felt Stella had used a bowl or some sort of grinding tool to break up her algae destroyer, just like she had been told to do. Once she had decided to poison Bruce, she obtained cyanide, the form and location of which were never found and using the same grinding tools, broke it up and put it into Bruce's Excedrin caplets, hence the accidental cross-contamination with the little green specks. Waiting for predictable Bruce to take his pills, he did and quickly succumbed to the powerful toxin. When his death was ruled natural, she did the same thing, putting more bottles on the shelf, then patiently watched the news to hear of another victim. This was her opening to call in Bruce's symptoms and reopen the case, which, oh so ironically, led to her downfall. She was sentenced to 90 years in prison. There was an attempted appeal from the defense based on jury tampering, a story that is fascinating and intricate, but it didn't amount to much. Deliberations had taken so long because of a single holdout who was certain Stella was innocent. She was a difficult juror, and everyone had issues with her. Then she told the judge she received a phone call at home, and a person on the other line said, don't you know she failed the lie detector test? Cheater. Which obviously isn't admissible. The phone call couldn't be traced and didn't seem to be a big enough of an issue to call for a mistrial. What did almost warrant one was when it was learned that that same juror had been involved in a tampering case of her own where she had sued the makers of goldfish crackers. Just two months before joining the jury, she had bitten into a goldfish and claimed an aspirin-like substance was inside. They ended up settling out of court. Since a direct question about that never came up during the void dire process, she didn't think it mattered. Neither did the judge, and the outcome was upheld. Stella is still alive and serving her time in Washington State Prison. It looks like she'll be serving her entire sentence. Her first stab at parole was shot down in 2017, and in the spring of this year, she wrote a petition requesting a compassionate release as the 78-year-old's health is failing. She has served over a third of her time and has had only two minor infractions in her over 30 years behind bars. That petition was denied. Her request may not have given her what she wanted, but it gave something to many others. She actually took responsibility for the crimes. Her letter read in part, There is no proven or even reasonable probability that I will commit another offense when paroled. I am 78 years old, and this is my first time in prison. I have always respected the officers and staff. I am accused of not knowing the moral wrong I committed. Nobody knows better than I the depth of my heinous offense and how deeply it goes against the accepted standards of conduct. I am most remorseful for being responsible for the loss of two human lives. So that was at least something. Her ownership probably came as a relief to her daughter, Cindy, whose whereabouts are unknown. Throughout the trial, the book I read, and even now, there are those who have always felt she either committed the acts with her mother or on her own to frame her mother. But she was the one that actually cracked the case. She was the daughter who had to testify against her own mother. Without her, justice wouldn't have been served. Adding to what some perceive as poor optics, Cindy did receive two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of the three hundred thousand dollars reward money. The other fifty k went to other parties that assisted in the investigation. The last time Cindy was seen, she was living in a storage unit. Plenty of people believed that she may have joined the witness protection program to start her new life safely. But who would have been out to get her? Okay. I think it's like, um. Fear of her mother, fear of the people that um think that it was her. People that were friends with her mom and stuff. Interesting. I mean, it's hard to get witness protection, so I I yeah, that's not and that's that's not confirmed at all. That's just some ideas of just possibility that to escape everything. I think
1: maybe she was involved, got the money, and was out of here lickety split.
0: Yeah, that too. This is a very popular case for multiple reasons. What's nice about that is there is some great media surrounding it, so you can really get an idea of the entire case. For most of the details, I read the book Bitter Almonds by Greg Olson. It is a beefer of a book, over 500 pages, but if you want details, that's the place to get them. Pros of the book? You will know everything about this case and feel like you know the people to an extent. Con, It's not only repetitive, but there are times that the details are a little too minute. It's a great book, though, and if you want more info on the trial, the last third is basically the transcription from the courtroom. You can also YouTube Bitter Almonds, Greg Olson, Sally Jesse Raphael. Mm -hmm. That sounds more my alley. And watch an entire episode (laughs) of My Middle School Afternoon Favorite as she interviews Stella's family members, friends, and even Sue's daughter Haley. Greg was there too, and at the time he felt that he knew Cindy fairly well, and he straight up said he did not trust her and that he would have been conflicted if he had been on the jury, sentiments he judgmentally makes very clear in the book. He thinks the pair worked together, but I'm curious about his thoughts now that Stella has taken responsibility. Personally, I took Cindy as a hurt, abused child who wanted nothing more than to be seen and loved by her mother who set horrible examples of how to behave and treat people and lived a life of similar morality because it was what she knew. Of course, there are plenty of questions that still hang around this case that will never be answered. One being that if Stella and Cindy were just getting back to a good place, why would Stella feel comfortable talking to her about murdering Bruce? During the investigation and trial, niece Wilma stood by Stella's side, never thinking she could be capable of such a thing. Not that many did, or at least in the dramatic matter that she did it. One friend even said, if Stella was going to kill you, she would just shoot you in the face. I'm not sure how great of an argument that is, but there you have it. For Wilma, it was once she was able to get back to Washington and clean out Stella's house that her mind was changed. Taking boxes of Stella's belongings back with her to Texas, she put them in her attic and didn't think much of it. Wilma had never believed her cousin Cindy or her stories, until one day when she decided to start cleaning out Stella's things. In the boxes, she found a diary, one of which talked about poisoning Bruce with seeds. In a prescription bottle, she found capsules full of little black seeds. With Stella already found guilty in the murders, she threw the evidence out having used it to only satisfy her need for closure. Waiting, wanting to understand, she wrote her aunt, who had been like a mother to her, asking about the seeds and diary. She never got a response. Berta, one of Stella's sisters, couldn't bring herself to accept the truth about Stella, even saying on Sally Jesse Raphael that it wasn't how they were raised. They had all been raised the same, therefore she just couldn't have done it. But the way they were raised had led to abuse, abandonment, rape, neglected children for generations, accidental death, estrangement, jail time, and eventually murder. Even after Paul was cleared and even after Stella went to trial, there were still those that could never feel certain he didn't have something to do with the death of his wife. For Paul himself, he was frustrated with the coroner. If they had, according to him, done their job correctly with Bruce's autopsy and had caught the cyanide, Sue Snow would have never fallen victim to Stella's plan
1: I'm gonna have to agree with him and I feel very bad for him
0: yeah what
1: a horrific event and the eyes on you I mean it doesn't help being an asshole in those situations like you're gonna look guilty right if you're constantly battling
0: people but obviously you're gonna be pissed because you didn't yeah, do it yeah I'd be pissed too be like, and stop talking to me go find the murderer and he's but then right. you look like the murderer
1: I mean I know we don't test for that in every autopsy but maybe
0: they should yeah I wonder if at this point, you know, because this was 30, almost 40 years ago, if there are further testings that happen, are, you know, like blood tests. Yeah, and I stuff. think there are
1: blood panels that test for like a ton of
0: things. Yeah. But st- oh, man,
1: I feel so bad for him. You know how many people in his life thought he was guilty? Oh, definitely. forever? definitely. Definitely.
0: Yeah, it really, it ruined so many relationships. It shattered, I mean, truly shattered that family. You had the older sister just staying away for school, and then the the daughter is wants to have this relationship that she's already had with her stepdad, but then her dad lives close, so, like, she just has to uproot her life. Yeah. And then Cindy is looked at as a suspect, and its it's just so many things. And the book is really, like, there are moments where it not only goes into, like... He, Greg the, Olson does that it's yeah minute <laughs> intricate minute. new like there's a whole section dedicated to Wilma the cousin and like her life and her well, pregnancies and marriages his and, thing
1: is he does deep interviewing with yeah with an individual so
0: it's it's a lot I'm not just talking about the case it's like every person connected to it and there's obviously so much more as far as Who spoke to who and who saw what and does maybe they have a cliff notes guys (laughs) yeah so uh, the Sally Jesse really was a good cliff notes uh, and it was really fun to watch old school and people be like what are you talking about like grabbing the microphone from her like excuse me I have a question for Greg (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it was interesting to see who changed their mind you know that people thought she was guilty and then thought she was innocent and then people that thought she was innocent thought she was guilty and uh, these conversations about was she having an affair with this family friend guy uh was he in on it to get Bruce out of the picture there's just so there's so many messy relationships that it really kind of lends to a lot of options of who would be interested in him not being around one of the things I was I have been
1: hung up on this entire time that we've been recording this is the focus on why someone would take capsule versus tablet like Unless you're telling me that Paul forced those down her throat, why does it matter? She willingly took the pill I that night. I think it was
0: just um, because they didn't know, you know, it was proven it was in the pills, and they it alluded didn't, to him and, messing with and them. And from what they knew, she was the first one, you know, because Bruce wasn't yeah. proven until later, and so it's only her, and it's in the house. But the
1: sister was so adamant about her never taking him. I'm yeah. like, obviously, she
0: did take it right which is so funny i was like trying to think i'm like do i know that kind of detail about literally anyone in my life (laughs) like
1: i do do about some people but
0: yeah maybe some really specific things but i i think that it was so scary because of her fear of the tylenol situation want anything to point at him exactly doing it and i
1: get that like the capsule he could tamper with right the tablet he couldn't. And,
0: and it makes sense if I have a loved one and we have had a conversation about both being paranoid about something and fearful of it, and then I find out that they died from that thing and they were taking it in a means that they had basically sworn off. That is, I think that's a fair red flag to say, like, that's just weird. I guess. When, I just, especially I, when everyone knows. Everyone at work. All of her friends. That makes sense. Everyone knows. I just
1: don't think there was any evidence of someone forcing her to take it, which right. is like then she willingly did it. Right. I don't like, know I'm why sure I was took... hung up on that detail, but I was.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, for the first bit, it's kind of like the entire case. Yeah. Is
1: that is a very interesting case. I actually have never heard it, which is surprising because I know all about the Tylenol murders. Yeah.
0: It's it's just really upsetting because, you know, as always, you can look at. At Stella's life and go that's a horrible life and you were not given the tools to have a healthy and successful life however not okay but it's one thing to kill your husband if you have some sort of plan for insurance or whatever you're one kind of monster but to have that not go your way so you decide to just kill it again, random. strangers you don't yeah. know if it's going to be children or a friend very or very dark uh, a it, literally anyone in the area and they happen to have caught it the fact that no one else died is like amazing even though she only did a few bottles yeah, and it's just it really speaks to her um, thinking things through to be like you have two bottles that are tainted that you got at different times at different locations that's like probably like by probability standards impossible and then the calling in that's the thing to, it's like that's that's how greedy she was yeah, she's a she... bad,
1: bad lady, and I do not buy the letter in the end. I'm sorry, I don't. I no, don't...
0: not at all. I'm glad that she took responsibility. Yeah, that, I mean, that's good. But, but also,
1: Cindy, I, I know. know you did something
0: bad. I don't know that she did. I think she did. Greg and- Olson writes uh, very... Um, he doesn't paint her in a good light, but I feel like the way he writes it, I can hear his voice. I think she did it by omission. I think she knew a lot and could have turned her in earlier. Maybe. And maybe she even had a promise of splitting the money or something and didn't stop maybe. it. But yeah. for me, that's from what I read of her, that's about as far as I would see it going. He really is not fond of her, and it's kind of biased. Maybe in the it's book. personal? Yeah, it's just kind of this judgmental, like you know, they're all just these white trash people and having babies and doing this, that and the other. And she just, I mean, can't she make was decisions. raised
1: by this monster. Yeah. It's like
0: her mother is a murderer. Do you s- think she's going to be flourishing? I still do think she's involved whether
1: or not, you know, if she was doing it to just be close to her mother, right. I get that. And she's incredibly damaged. Right. But I, I and can't you let t- it go. <laughs> I mean,
0: it would be hard to either lose that relationship that Whether or not it's healthy or good for you, you pine for it because it's your mother. So you either lose that relationship or, yeah, you go along with it and you're part of this murder. Well, here's
1: hoping she's lived a stand-up life since then and I'm wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I've, yeah, she just didn't strike me as like a, I don't know, like a, a, someone seeking out like a, yeah, like a criminal life or anything. It was Mm. like. Well, if I stay quiet, my mom won't hate me, and we can share this money. And if I talk to anybody, it, it destroys that relationship. Hmm. But well, it's intricate, it's sad, and it's very, very interesting.
1: So yeah. thanks for sharing.
0: Yeah, thanks for thanks for listening,
1: everyone. And it's really hot in here, guys. It was.
0: Let's go get some Costco hot dogs. <laughs> of Excedrin at home were checking them so they could call if, call in if. Call if. if. <laughs> call if.
1: <laughs> That's how we talk now. We have our own ways of speaking. It's Fuck true. you,
0: Tilda Jean. <laughs> yeah, Tilda. <laughs> eat my dick.
1: <laughs> uh, excuse me. Um, Taco Bell sounds good, too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you already have hot dogs on the way. I can have both at Sunday, bitch. Yeah, you can. <laughs> I was just saying, don't forget. <laughs> I'm glad my burp reminded you of Taco Bell. (laughs) I mean,
1: I could almost taste the the beef flavor.
0: Sorry, vegetarian. Anacin, right? Anacin. Anacin. Oh, (laughs) Anna. Anna, The name Anna. She done sinned. Oh, perfect. Thank you. (laughs) I always have my best dates there. With your sizzler boyfriend. My sizzler boyfriend's the only (laughs) place I be seen with them. Put on that weird shelf in the back of the store where it's the like discount, half off. F- like <laughs> and you're not quite sure why. 50 cent banana. Yeah.
1: How much does a banana these days? I don't even know.
0: Inflation, I man. live a life of- You're so out of touch, man. I am. A banana-free life. No, What's I'm- a gallon of milk cost? $50? What's the $50? word I always <laughs>
1: forget? The word I always forget. Privilege. Privilege. I live a life of privilege where I don't check the price of my bananas. <laughs> I'm sorry. Thanks for bragging. <laughs> Well, I only eat four at a time. I only buy four at a time, so it's never that If much. you ate four bananas at a time oh, I would be and a I just pervert. learned that,
0: I would die. Ooh,
1: gross. I'm like- <laughs> My I birthday? My birthday? I double, <laughs> my breakfast? I double fist banana breakfast. Oh my god, sick! You'd die. Oof. I would
0: die. That's disgusting. That's I too much banana. I can't
1: even eat a whole one. Oof. I have to make Chloe eat the other I'm half, because she does not like them.
0: <laughs> too much banana talk. I'm not a minion.
1: I know you hate banana smell, which I think is- <sighs> funny
0: so funny I'm like the smell of the minions is gone <laughs> <laughs> you nasty. and you were so pissed I was pissed you duped me
1: it ran out I remember the last time I was there you couldn't smell it at all oh good I hope so they Better. Need to refill them cartridges <laughs> with <laughs> banana farts <laughs> we need bloops though oh yeah we need some true. extra content bloops bloop I bloop think. bloop bloopity bloop bloop <laughs> banana orange you glad I didn't say blooper oh god Minion fart.
0: Okay, this is my last mistake of the day. Okay. The cyanide contained microscopic green specks of an unknown, unknown urchin. Uh, that was another mistake.
1: So. Uh, well,
0: I said this will be my last You're one, a liar. so like that was my that oh, last one was it my last. It wasn't retroactive. Yeah, it okay, was. Fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So we'll we'll that see just how that now. Goes. Let's yeah, just see. that
1: was. Yeah. Okay. You owe me a dollar for every mistake.
0: <laughs> oh God, I'm getting sweaty over here. <laughs> asking those that worked with sue they co- oh why did i do this corroborate corroborated asking those that worked with sue they co- <laughs> <sighs> we're using a mass spectrometer to pre- process process to
1: process the spinach i can say
0: mass spectrometer pro- but i can't say process or corroborate how do you <laughs> <laughs> when she made a purchase they spoke even larger larger
1: <laughs> I'm speaking larger now.
0: <laughs> Say it larger. <laughs> Excuse me, could you speak large? <laughs> I'm small of hearing. <laughs> that could very well be hot dogs. Hey, no worries. It was,
1: hot it was hot dogs. Did you eat one while I you were a in bite there? I a hot dog and it was so fucking good.
0: Josh. <laughs> Don't oh.
1: fall in. Don't fall over and knock your desk over and knock everything else over. <laughs> yeah.
0: Our lives are in your hands and you have butter fingers? I got a big, thick Josh tongue. She and Bruce had loaned Cindy money. Who? Oh. This is hard. How dare she <laughs> try to besmirch goldfish? Honestly. One of the greatest crackers to ever live. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore murder in the rain on TikTok. And you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs>